Today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast, award-winning author and theologian Russell Moore joins us to talk about the apologetics of C.S. Lewis, Johnny Cash, and Jimmy Buffett. And I'm Garrick. If you're interested in more content from Russell Moore, check out his chapter on natural revelation in a book called A Theology for the Church, edited by Danny Aiken and published by B&H Academic. Another great book by Russell Moore is Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel from B&H Publishing. For more information on either of these books or many other great resources, please visit bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. With me today on this special edition of Three Chords in the Truth, I have Dr. Russell Moore. Russell Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he's the author of The Kingdom of Christ, Adopted for Life, Tempted and Tried, in addition to the award-winning book, Storm-Tossed Family, as well as my favorite of his books, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. And this book, Onward, was so well-received that it's recently been made into a Disney and Pixar film entitled Onward. <laughs> <laughs> and they took a lot of they took a lot of liberties with your storyline in that. We've only got 24 hours to bring back the rest of Dad. We're going on a quest. Well, previous to serving at the ERLC, he was Senior Vice President and Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and was instrumental in hiring me here, so there's any declaration of conflicts of interest in this conversation. And so anyway, it is so good to have you with us today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. Oh, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, I always ask every guest one particular question to begin with, a very important question, and it is, if you could be a member of any rock band in the history of rock and roll, what band would it be, and what would you be doing in that band? I wouldn't, because <laughs> having read so many music biographies and knowing so many people who have lived that life, it rarely turns out well in the long run. So I wouldn't do that. I benefit from those who do, but I wouldn't want to do that. But I suppose if I could be anybody who has lived that life, the closest I would want to get to it is Paul McCartney. And I'm not a, a huge Beatles person. I appreciate the Beatles, but I'm not a Beatles fan by any means. But he has, it seems to me, turned out here in his 70s to be someone with a, a good bit of balance in his life, relatively speaking. I just saw a, an interview that he did not long ago where he was talking about some of the, the trouble that had happened between him and John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And, 
And he did it without bitterness. And it was one of those things where it really did seem as though he was able to forgive them and move on. And talking about how glad he was that he and John had reconciled before Lennon was murdered. You know, it just seemed to me that his life has not been as defined by that drive towards success as other people's have. Well, let's first talk about the role that apologetics has played in your life. You and I have talked informally in other contexts about sort of a crisis of faith that you had in your teenage years as you as you kind of wrestled with the Jesus that you'd seen in Bible Belt, evangelicalism, and the true Jesus, the real Jesus of the scriptures. Could you just talk about that particular experience in your own life and how apologetics came into play in that? Well, my primary problem was not, first of all, cognitive, although there was an aspect of that. And one of the, the ways that that came into play was that I would hear caricatured arguments that I knew to be caricatures, even as an eight-year-old, of conflicting viewpoints which caused me to say, it it caused a great deal of alarm to me, not because I wanted to believe in atheism or whatever the other viewpoints were, but because I said to myself, you either don't understand these issues well enough to talk about them, or you're intentionally trying to deceive. And in either case, how can I then trust you? So, I mean, we're just talking about music. I remember being in the seventh grade and spending a lot of time doing the backward masking. You know, no one who has come of age anytime recently would even know what I'm talking about. But this was in a particular sort of fundamentalist church to take records particularly and turn them backwards because there were hidden, supposedly embedded messages. And the curricula that came out would say, listen, this says Satan wants you to kill your mom or whatever that's in there. And I remember listening to this and thinking, this is really kind of ridiculous. I felt like in the office, Ryan does a talking head one time where he's talking about a funeral that his mom had for a goldfish. And he said, I remember thinking, I'm a little too old for this. And I was five years old. I sort of had the same sort of thinking. But more than that was the fact that Christianity, the kind of Christianity that I knew, seemed so morally inconsistent and seemed to me to be more of a means to an end. It was really more about propping up Southern culture, propping up a political agenda, all of those sorts of things, because there was a lot of racism, a lot of violence, a lot of physical violence going on behind the scenes that no one was addressing, and then a lot of denunciations of the culture when it came to sex while simultaneously covering up things that even I, as a 12, 13, 14-year-old, knew what was going on with some of these evangelists and, and whatever, but it was all being covered up. And so that threw me into a crisis and, and actually into a deep depression because I didn't want to be an atheist or an agnostic. I really did believe in Jesus. I really did believe the Bible 
and had experienced Jesus and had experienced God in the pages of the text. And so I didn't want to go in that direction. And so it threw me into this, this real depression. And what happened was what brought me out of that was not a series of arguments. And so I tell people often, thankfully, I had read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe you know, many times as a kid. And so I recognized the name C.S. Lewis on the spine of mere Christianity. And so I took the book home and read it. But it wasn't that there were arguments in mere Christianity that convinced me. It was more that there was a sort of tone of voice that came through in C.S. Lewis. And I, Neil Gaiman, who did not turn out to be a Christian, but talks about the same thing when he was reading the Chronicles of Narnia, that there seemed to be somebody standing behind the words. And I think that was, that was very clearly true. And this was somebody who seemed not to be trying to sell me something. And it, it kind of gave me an entryway into a bigger form of mere Christianity that I really needed and still do. That's what happened. So I actually think that for me anyway, Chronicles of Narnia was more apologetically useful than mere Christianity, although mere Christianity pointed me back to Chronicles of Narnia. I find that really interesting because in a similar way, but with different books, I ended up being drawn to C.S. Lewis. But the book that for me did it was Surprised by Joy. Again, not just because of intellectual arguments, but because I saw for really the first time, I'm not the first person to have dealt with this issue at that point. It was comforting to realize that. But it was, again, from the Chronicles of Narnia, jumping into that, not necessarily the logical side of the argument, but rather... Rather, the fact that there is somebody else who is wrestling with and has wrestled with these issues in church history, things that to me seemed really new, but actually weren't in that. Well, and also, and I think this is key, with a lack of swagger, because what I would often hear in the evangelicalism that I knew was, here is why people who believe fill in the blank are essentially stupid and evil. And so it's you're taught to have these catchy phrases to come back and essentially to humiliate the other side. But once you get to know either the arguments involved or the people involved, you know, these aren't stupid people. These aren't especially evil people. I mean, we're all evil in one sense, but they're not any more evil than the Christians, you know, and in many cases, less so. And so what Lewis had was none of that bravado and triumphalism. Instead, he was in Surprised by Joy is one of those places that, that really does this well. He went through and said, I really grappled with the claims of Hinduism. And here's, here's why Hinduism seemed to be credible to me, but ended up not being. I mean, I, and I think that is actually far more effective in terms of speaking to people. Well, in a secular age, many Christian parents, they're concerned. We are concerned about whether our children will remain faithful to Jesus. And so, as you think about this, and this is something you've written on several different places, what are some of the key factors that pull children away from the Christian faith? And what can parents be doing to help their children remain faithful to the faith and to face these challenges? Well, I think the main thing that, in my experience anyway, 
leads to a crisis that will lead children and, and young adults out of the faith is a lack of moral credibility within the church. So when they see, as one person said to me, and this was someone in a Roman Catholic context, but who had always been a faithful Catholic church member who said, I'm not going to mass anymore. And it's not because I don't think that what my church teaches is true. It's because I don't think my church believes what they teach is true. And that instead, this is just an institution that's being propped up. And so there can be this sort of awakening that takes place, and it really doesn't matter what strand of religion one is in, where one starts to conclude, the people around me, this church or this family that I'm in, at best, is just taking the path of least resistance in terms of their own family expectations or or cultural expectations, and at worst, maybe is the equivalent of Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor, where the religion is necessary in order to control people or in order to be at war with the culture or whatever. The issue is, I think that is where most people end up turning. Now, they get the cognitive arguments later on, but I think the cognitive arguments are the second step. It's the second step that says, okay, I know this is bankrupt and why? And they seek to, to find it that way. And so I think that's where a lot of it is. And then I think there's a secondary issue that I still don't know how to address. And it is just the fact that Right now, you're living at a time where it's really hard, especially in an evangelical context, but really in any context, to build the sort of weekly habituation toward the practices that it takes to be in Christ. So I think that in my own life, and I think this is the case for most people, it was less important the sort of teaching that I received in terms of here's this teaching and here's that teaching and here's and that was less important than the hymnody and just being in the Bible all the time as part of the atmosphere. And I don't think you can do that in one hour a week. And I, I also don't think you can do that in one hour a week and then supplemented by all sorts of family devotions. I think that really does require a sort of rhythm of the week and of the year that has been lost. And it's very difficult for me to see how that turns back. Well, as we think about things that that shape us, that form us, I want to shift gears a little bit. And let's talk about music and how music shapes us and forms us. And just ask, what is the music that has shaped your soul the most? As you look back on your life, what music has really shaped your soul over the decades? Well, in terms of my soul, I would say hymnody has shaped it the most. I mean, I'm, I love music, and I love music of all different sorts, but the hymnody particularly that came along at the time when I really needed it, when I was being shaped and formed, that's the music that's still able to, to reach me. I mean, I remember when the, the pandemic first started, and I just happened to pull up, there was a YouTube video of this virtual choir of people on Zoom singing. It is well. It is well. 
I broke down because it, it reached to a deeper level and it connected past to present. So that is important. But I will also say the sort of contemporary Christian music of the 1980s, and I mean the best of it and what some people consider the worst of it, were really important to me. And I think shaped and formed the way that I read the Bible for the better. I had a group of students around years ago when I was back at the school you serve now, and they weren't familiar with any of these sort of people, figures from that era of music. I started playing a bunch of it. And several of them said, wow, your entire sort of theology is encapsulated in these songs. And I think that was probably true. That was helpful, but also because I started to become interested in that music, which was, I needed it at the moment because it differentiated me from my church, which was very suspicious of that sort of music to some degree. It differentiated me enough that I was able to sort of find my own identity, but not in a way that was rebellious. And so I was able to kind of track that through. You know, it's hard to know what all the little moments of your life are that made the big difference. But I think in my case, one of them was I picked up a copy of, there was this magazine at the time when I was a kid called CCM Magazine about contemporary Christian music. And there was a column in there by someone named John Fisher. He was just talking about different issues every month. And I really resonated with the fact that he seemed so free of anger and seemed to be a Christian who had a genuine kind of curiosity. And so that led me to Christianity Today. And Christianity Today, for me, you know, as a teenager in the middle of the Bible Belt, it was sort of radio-free Bible Belt for me. I was able to hear kind of an ongoing sort of C.S. Lewis voice from people such as Philip Yancey and J.I. Packer and Chuck Colson and people along those lines that, again, seem to be free from anger, seem to have really thought through why it is that they were in Christ and seem to genuinely love Jesus and not be scared and, and panicked. And so I think the music led me there. I don't know about you, but one of the albums that formed my view of the world as a whole, I think, was This Means War by Petra. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That, me too. That one right there, it was a great album. <laughs> And that was one of the albums that I shared with the students. I could, I could take you through every song, even right now, on that album, song by song. And, I mean, there's one of the songs on that album, Dead Reckoning, that talks about, it's hard to believe, but it's true, on a hill long ago where the blood runs below died a king, two thieves, and you. And... That really spoke to me <laughs> at a place where I needed to, it sort of took Romans 6 and Colossians 3 and brought it home to me.
I was just uh, writing something the other day, and I was talking about worship leadership, and I spoke of Kenaniah of the Levites. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course, as I did, they had a, a, an entire song devoted to him. Well, in addition to Petra and some of these others and these hymns that we've talked about, you're known as a fan of Johnny Cash. And uh, what is it about Johnny Cash from a theological perspective? What draws you to the music of Johnny Cash? Gravity. I think when you look at Cash, you see someone who even when he's doing, you know, he did a lot of lighter sort of novelty songs. Boy Named Sue, the one on the right is on the left, those sorts of songs. But even when he's doing that, there's a kind of gravity that's coming through. And then when you look at the whole sweep of his life, especially the American recordings later on, where he is doing a cover of Nine Inch Nails, Hurt, that's an entirely different song. (laughs) It's a brilliant song all around, but his cover of it is entirely different. And especially because he's doing it in the music video, at least, he's doing it with these images flashing of June Carter Cash, his his wife who died uh, right in the middle of all that time, and all of sort of the scenes of him at his most triumphant, saying, you can have it all, my empire of dirt. And there was a certain sort of weight to it that I think holds up. And you could have it all My empire of dirt I will let you down I will make you Well, I want to talk about one of your most controversial stances on an issue of of great theological importance, on which I happen to agree with you, but it's really controversial, and that is your view of Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> now, that's, that's another musical artist that I know shows up often on your own personal playlist, and uh, thinking from a theological perspective, many people would look at Jimmy Buffett and think of why on earth would anybody think there's anything worth listening to in Jimmy Buffett, because they think of just Margaritaville, and perhaps they, they've never even heard anything past that. But why, as a theologian, as an ethicist, as somebody thinking theologically about the world, why would you look at Jimmy Buffett and have him on your playlist? Smell shrimp here again in the bar. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wasted away. Well, I mean, one reason is we're, we're from the same part of the world, and we were shaped and formed by the same Gulf Coast world. And so I know what he's singing about in that sense, but also because my favorite stuff from Jimmy Buffett is not the sort of fun Margaritaville kind of, although I like those, and I, I play those all the time too, but that's not what my favorite stuff of Jimmy Buffett is. What I prefer from Jimmy Buffett are the, and my wife once told someone, she said, if you really want to just know my husband, all you need to know is that 
he likes Johnny Cash and everyone thinks, you know, that he's a Johnny Cash guy and he does. He likes Johnny Cash, but Jimmy Buffett is the most played on his playlist, but it's not the fun tropical songs. It's the songs about musings on the inevitability of death, you know, the, the, those sorts of, so death of an unpopular poet is one that I love. He went to Paris is a song that I love and I think is is just genius at the songwriting level. A Pirate Looks at 40. Those songs that really do take a broad narrative view of life and have a sense of the tragic and the melancholy of life, but mixed with the sweetness and the longing there. Those are the songs that I love the most and that, that I listen to the most. But the other thing is, I think that Buffett... There's a really good biography of Buffett that came out maybe three years ago, and it was talking about how it was very difficult for him when he first started. He comes to to Nashville, and nobody could categorize him. So people are saying, you're never going to make it because you're not country, you're not rock, you're not folk, really. So there's, there's no real category for you, and rather than just become who they were telling him to be, which would have made him just another singer that we probably wouldn't even remember now. He just did what he was gifted to do. And there's a quote in there of someone saying, oh man, he's decided to just be Jimmy Buffett. (laughs) And of course he was. At some point, someone else is commenting later on in his life and said, it seems to me that Jimmy Buffett is adapting to his own lyrics. And I, I think that's true. And if you read Buffett's writings, one of the things that you'll find is that you have someone who, like me, early on, was really disillusioned with religious structures. But unlike me, he didn't have C.S. Lewis. And so he went in a different direction. But he is constantly wrestling with those questions. So he, he hasn't moved on from those things. You mentioned earlier he went to Paris. Man, what a song. That is just a a songwriting seminar right there. His summers and winters scattered like splinters and four or five years slipped away. It goes on through somebody's life. And at the end, if I remember the lyrics right, it's the tears were falling and he was recalling answers he'd never found. Some of it's magic and some of it's tragic, but I had a good life all good the life way. All the way. Jimmy, some of it's magic. Some of it tragic, but I had a good life all the way. There's a longing and a joy, and there's a sense of a of a transcendent meaning to life. He he's not getting there, but there's this sense of transcendent meaning that is there. Not just transcendent meaning, but there needs to be an objective songwriter who's able to see this entire life and to put all of these things together. All of the answers and all of the questions locked in his attic one day Cause he liked quiet clean country living and 20 more years slipped away I talk about all the time that I think the most compelling apologetic argument for the Christian faith is that of one of my favorite writers, uh, Frederick Buechner, who's not really developing it into an apologetic argument, but he's just talking about his own life as a novelist, 
that he learned to recognize plot. And then he started to, over time, to recognize that his life had a plot. If that's true, then that means that there is a God. I think that Buffett gets that, at least at the level of songwriting, that there's a sense of, because if you think, look at, he went to Paris, what Jimmy Buffett is doing is essentially having a judgment day. He's putting narrative coherence to this life in a way that, that can't happen if we're simply lost in the cosmos, random products of, of accident. And I mean, I suppose someone could say, well, yes, but that's, that's not the way that it is. That, that's the way that it is in, in writing a novel or writing songs. But then the question is, but why do we, why do we want that? <laughs> Which I think takes you back to Lewis's argument in Surprised by Joy, that there's a hunger that presupposes a way to satisfy that hunger. And I think that Buffett is, is at least wrestling with that stuff in his songs. I think he recognizes, and I think this is becoming more and more true, the further into secularity we move as a culture, where one of the most compelling arguments for God is which I would, what I would call a narrative argument for God, and that we are made for a narrative. We are made for a narrative with an eschatology, with an endpoint at which things are made right and new. And if that doesn't happen— there is no satisfaction. So we have to opt for one of two things. Either we have all of these longings, all of these yearnings for a narrative that has no meaning and is somehow this result of evolutionary forces acting on us, or we are actually created for a story, to fit within a story, to have an endpoint to our story. And it's one of those situations where that is the only satisfying answer. There may be another answer, but there is no other satisfying answer than that we were made for a story. We were made for this to have meaning and to have an end point. He went past looking for answers to questions that bothered him so. This is Timothy, and I'm back here with Garrick Bailey. And several of you over the past few weeks, especially among our newer listeners, have asked about what are the ways that you can support this podcast, that you can promote this podcast, and that you can support what Garrick and I are trying to accomplish through this particular podcast. And so we thought we'd take just a few minutes to let you know some of the ways that you can do that, some of the ways that you can support what we're trying to accomplish and to do through this podcast, which is to get apologetics resources into the hands of ordinary people. Timothy is the author of many books that you can find in various places, including most recently, Why Should I Trust the Bible, published with Christian Focus. Timothy, where can folks find and engage with you on the interwebs? Well, they can go to my website, timothypauljones.com, and they can also go to threechordsapologetics.com to learn more about this podcast. And that is, as always, we say, chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. And on Twitter, if they want to jump in on there, that would be Dr. Timothy P. Jones. Dr. Timothy P. Jones, because when your last name is Jones, everything else is already taken. So you got to add something. So Dr. Timothy P. Jones. That's right. <laughs> and I haven't written anything. Uh, 
I'm trying to write a dissertation that you'll never read, but you can find me on Twitter at Garrick Bailey. There's no spaces in that. It's just at Garrick Bailey, G-A-R-R-I-C-K-B-A-I-L-E-Y. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And thank you so much to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com to find more theology and more apologetics resources. And also, if you're interested in studying apologetics with me, I want to invite you to take a look at the apologetics programs at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree on campus or online, I would be so glad to have you as a guest at our next preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu slash visit. And also, if you're interested in a podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. If you have not subscribed, if you have are just kind of dating this program and haven't really given a ring like you should have to this program by becoming engaged completely in this program, then we would ask that you subscribe to the program and leave a review because that's one of the ways that people find out about this podcast and any podcast is the reviews. Uh, people go looking for the reviews to find out if this is something they want to listen to. So review this program to let people looking for a program to listen to know that they should or shouldn't listen to this program.